Welcome to State of Emergency. My name is Peter Schorsch. I'm here with my co-host, whose first name is a great first entrance into Wordle, Jared Moskowitz. Jared, how are you doing? I'm good. So what is Wordle? (laughs) It's this game online. It pops once a day and only once a day. You get, um, there's five letters at the top. You enter a five-letter word, and it guides you uh, by either a green, uh, like if it colors the letters green, so let's say Jared, J-A-R-E-D, let's say that it colors the letter A green, then you know that the word you're looking for, that the letter is in the right place, and it's used. Now, if it's yellow, let's say that it's J-A-R-E-D, and it the A is yellow, the letter is in the word, but it's not in the right place. And so it's kind of like a little wheel of fortune thing where you're, you know, you're throwing out your, like I use laser as my first word. Um, and then, you know, and it'll pick up like sugar was yesterday. So the, I got the S and the A, but they were in the wrong place. And so you kind of, you just guess at it. Some people are really good at it. I'm not, I don't have the brain for it uh, that way, but uh, it's addictive and, it's the okay, crazy. I'm, bo- I'm bored. I'm I'm already bored. All right. What's going on, Peter? What's going on with me? What's going on with you? Let's um let's do some housekeeping. We've been off. We I knew that we were gonna ha- have this like this this difficult period. And obviously, as as the world knows, and as the as you, the Florida and the community around you has mourned, you lost your father um in between our last two podcasts and. I mean, I I don't know what to say, so I'm going to give you, I don't don't know, it's not a news wrap up. What do you want to say here on this? Well, I mean, listen, you know, we had been talking about it for months. Uh, I think obviously people now understand why I left in in May of last year. Some people might have not understood. Obviously, I, I, I at the time I announced it was about my kids and my wife, which it was. But obviously, a huge part of it was that I realized time was not our friend uh, with with what was going on with my dad. You know, chemo had been working for a period of time. We had gotten the numbers down. And then just like a switch, uh, the cancer adapted and the numbers kept going up and we were keeping them at bay, but we could no longer really reverse uh, what was happening. And so I realized that I had I had to come home. So. You know, just because we knew at the time in July of 20 that. Uh, you know, we knew what the uh, prognosis was going to be with this illness. You know, you don't survive pancreatic cancer stage four. You buy as much time as you can. But I got to be honest, it hasn't made it any easier. Uh, you know, I'm sure there are pluses and minuses to having a long illness versus, you know, getting hit by a bus and being gone one day. Uh, you know, but either way, when it happens, that person is gone and that void is still there. I can't tell you how many times I have found myself trying to pick up the phone, being like, oh, I'm going to call my, oh, yeah, that's right. I can't call him. Mm. Uh, and that's a real thing. That's a real thing that there are things that are, there are things that happened in my day for the last, you know, you know, 20 plus years since, you know, I had a cell phone. Okay. Where something would happen in my day and I'd be like, oh, I got to call my dad and tell, oh, and, you know, now, now that's just gone. It just, it, and you know, look, I'm 41 years old. No one has to explain to me that death is final, right? 
but when it happens, there is a strange, weird finality to it because it's those little things like that person is not on the other end of the phone anymore to respond. You know, my dad is like when I pick up my iPhone, my dad's in my favorites. What do I do with that? Right. So it's like it's those sort of things that, uh, you know, now that unfortunately he's gone that you have to deal with. I mean, look, my dad was my mentor, my best friend, my sounding board. You know, he he was, you know, somebody that, you know, when I'm just shooting around an idea, I would bounce it off of him, see what he thought, get his thoughts. I mean, he was a real life barometer for me. So, you know, look, it's obviously a huge loss to the family. It's a huge loss for me personally. I feel really bad for my kids. You know, I didn't have this experience growing up. And I guess I was naive and I clearly was. I, I didn't lose a grandparent until I was 20. Uh, all four of my grandparents were alive. I've lost my first one at 20 years old. They died at 88, 85, 90, and 94. So while I missed them, obviously, they lived full lives. It wasn't tragedy. Uh, and, you know, my kids are eight and five. And, you know, my dad died at 68 years old. You know, that's, that's just something I, I didn't experience that. I, I, I know many people have and did, and even worse, parents dying much younger, uh, obviously. And so I'm, I'm grateful that I got him as long as I did, but you know, my, my kids are really going to miss out. My dad worked his whole life. He was a workaholic. Uh, and I know he was getting to the point where he was going to start taking a step back because he wanted to do more with the grandkids. He wanted to travel. He wanted to, you know, sit and do homework with them. He wanted to do that sort of stuff. And, and none of that has going to happen now. And so it's just, you know, for them, you know, it, it's just a big loss. They don't know what they're missing. Of course, I know what they're missing and kids are resilient. You know, they'll, they'll be okay, but their life, there's an enrichment in their life that they will, they will not receive. And so, you know, I'm, I'm sad about that. And so, you know, I, you know, obviously every County is different. It's not like I've been in Broward. I've not been able to like grieve privately. Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton called me, Al Gore called me, uh, Senator Lieberman called me. I had, you know, four congressmen show up to Shiva. So it's, uh, it's not, it's, it's been, it's been a lot to deal with, quite frankly. Uh, and I appreciate you had to to be touched. I mean, you know, this was a man in full and the outpouring for him was, uh, you know, I I will say like, no, Peter, listen, I I, I I am touched. Yeah, I am touched by I want to be clear. I am touched about all the support, quite frankly. I didn't realize how much support and friends we had until all of this happened. You know, but the fun, the, the first thing I like after I got off the phone with Senator Clinton, uh, Secretary Clinton, the first thing I wanted to do was call my dad and be like, oh, Secretary Clinton called. Yeah. You yeah. know, and and so, it, it you know, listen, I, my dad was a my dad was a loyal guy, you know, to a lot of people. He helped a lot of people. Uh, He did no business in Washington, D.C., zero. He did no business in Tallahassee, zero. But he helped a lot of people because he believed in good government and he believed we needed to have people that are very smart in government. And so he did it for all the right reasons. I grew up in that. I mean, you know, he took me to a Jesse Jackson for president rally when I was eight years old. Um, And so, you know, it's, it's nice to see that but now that he's not here anymore, that those people are paying their respects. And I am very appreciative 
uh, for all of the love and support that we have gotten. Uh, I mean, it just it's 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 been overwhelming. But now that that's all gone, this is the period of time that's the hardest because now all all of that, you know, in in when in the Jewish religion, you know, someone dies. There's obviously a funeral service, a burial. Then you sit Shiva. And that's like literally where everyone comes to your house. You eat, you talk. It's 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 an event. And we've had thousands of people in and out of the house over the last several days. And now that's all gone. And so, you know, it uh, this is this is the period of time. I mean, there's a there's just like a weird sound of silence in my life now with him not being here. Okay. Uh, I, I, I knew this was going to be a, a challenge and I feel like I felt like what you're saying, like, this is going to be a difficult period. It's a, like, that's why I wanted to renew the podcast and get things going. It was like, I missed you and I didn't know how to really, I'm like, I'm like your thousandth best friend. So it's like, I don't even know how to, maybe not even, I'd probably top 2000. Um, but, no, come on. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're within the thousand. I mean, come I, on, please. I, top 1000. Okay. Um, so we've got a good guest today. Yes. Um, yes. I'm excited. Like, this is, this is a good distraction for me. I did, did. I did some good. No, no. Work. By the way, you pulled, you didn't just do some work. You pulled a rabbit out of a hat. This is, this is a gift, quite frankly. We're going to get the house speaker coming up in a moment. Um, in the middle of session, uh, I, it's the best I could do. Uh, other than, you know, the Senate president, you know, right there. So let's talk to Chris Sproles for a few minutes about some of the things that are going on in Tallahassee. And then I want to circle back. I want to hear about the big new thing you're working on, which is the county commission. Sounds great. Joining us now in the middle of session, this is a, uh, this is a treat, a privilege um, from Pinellas County House Speaker, Chris Sproles. Speaker, how are you? I'm good, Peter. Great to, great to be with you and Jared. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, we appreciate you making time for it. This is Jared's kind of comeback podcast after everything that he's gone through with his dad uh, over the last month. And so um, I told him that I would do some work and I would uh, get a big name. Uh, Jimmy Patronus wasn't available. And so uh, <laughs> First of all, let's be clear. Jimmy Patronus is always available. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that didn't work because if we just put out the bad signal like, hey, we're going to do a Twitter spaces live at 1130 tonight. Jimmy, are you in? He would, you know, he, he would he would definitely be on. He'd come on. He's, he's used to the hospitality of being in the restaurant business. No, P P Peter, Peter pulled out all the stops. He got the speaker mid session. Well, it's good to it's good to be with you. It was really it's really tough to say no to the two of you guys. And Jared, I know that, uh, you know, you and I had the chance to correspond a little bit, but obviously we've been thinking about you and, and uh, your family. And I know it's uh, how difficult it must be, but it's also I'm really I'm really happy that you and your dad got to share a real special moment together, uh, you know, a week or two ago, a couple weeks ago when you got sworn in. So we're uh, we've been thinking and praying for you guys. No, thanks, speaker. I appreciate your support and and everyone else's support in Tallahassee. It's been it's been overwhelming. And and for the record, you had no problem saying no to me a lot when I was in the house. So <laughs> well, listen, everybody loves you. That doesn't mean we say yes. We just love you. Yeah, this oh, is fine. a real treat for it. Jared. He told me he's never spoken to a speaker uh, in the middle of session before. So <laughs> Well, usually usually they have to come from the rostrum to the back row to tell me to sit down <laughs> or to withdraw amendments. Um, all right, we want to start because you made some news yesterday 
Uh, you and the governor were in Crawfordville. I'm not exactly sure where that is, by the way. The governor's been, he's been pulling out some like locations. Like I swear to you, I did not know there was a Bowling Green, Florida until he did the press conference last week in Hardy. I, I, I read Bowling Green and I thought he was up north. I mean, he he's pulling out some cities uh, that uh, I did not even know about. Um, but it was a good it was a good cause yesterday. Your reading initiative, which you started last year, um, got through the legislature. Tell us about that because this is one of the this is one of the real cases where government is doing some really good work. You guys are doing it's a really good idea, and so we'd like to start with you uh, being able to talk about that. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. You know, it was cool yesterday to be with so many kids and giving out books, all sort of part of celebrating the, you know, New World's Reading Initiative um, that we started here in the house. And uh, you guys may recall that, you know, when I came in, you know, we I talked a lot about reading in my first speech and, you know, we found some really alarming statistics. So here we are, right? We're, we're Floridians. So we're fourth in the nation in fourth grade reading. So you would think, man, that's pretty good. Like fourth in the nation, we're, you know, we're probably good. The reality is when you when you start looking at some of the numbers, you know, 88% of people who don't graduate from high school were struggling readers in third grade. 88% of them. And then you, you know, you kind of take one step back and you say, okay, well, 43% of pre-K kids coming into kindergarten, you know, aren't kindergarten ready. So I, I asked this question, you know, months before that speech, before I, you know, we we kind of came in and took over in the house, was okay, well, we're fourth in the country. If we kept on sort of current upward trends. You know, how long would it be until, you know, 90 plus percent of kids in Florida were reading on grade level? And the answer I got back was 250 years. Wow. And, you, you know, you're faced with something like that as a lawmaker when you thought, gosh, you're, you're, you know, you're doing pretty good compared to the national counterparts. And you realize, like, doing pretty good isn't good enough when there's that many kids who aren't going to graduate from high school because they, they can't read. But, but one thing that was special, which we don't always get, is we know when we lose them. Right. We know in K through three, K through five, if we don't have that child reading on grade level, there's a really, really good chance they're not going to graduate. There's a really, really good chance that some of the life opportunities that could have come their way are never going to come. So, well, what do we need to do? And it kind of, you know, we, we use this theme about sort of kind of going to the moon. Right. You know, JFK gives that speech, you know, and says, you know, in the next next decade, we're going to go to the moon. And when he said it, nobody really knew if that was even possible to get there. And the house sort of our moonshot in, in literacy is the New World's Reading Initiative. And, and it does a couple of things. Number one, when we found out that 60 plus percent of struggling readers don't have a book in their home. Now, Peter, Jared, like you guys, you know, very active fathers. I am confident that your house probably looks like mine, which is like there's books everywhere. Um, you know, little kid books everywhere. You know, they're, they're, they're reading all the time. But imagine such a large percentage of kids K through five who are struggling readers who have no book whatsoever in their home. You know, if you have no book, you can't fall in love with reading. Like you can't see its value. You can't fall in love with the character or open up new worlds. So the first thing is we got to get a book in their hands. Uh, so the new world's reading initiative is now the, the largest book delivery program in America, um, delivering high quality age appropriate books to kids at their front door. You know, and, and you guys remember being a kid, like, you know, you get a you get a letter in the mail with your name on it. And you thought you were like, it was like the best day ever. Um, you know, imagine getting a package. It's a book. It's for you. You get to keep it. Build your own home library on a topic that you're interested in. So if you're interested in space, you know, you got a book about space. 
And, you know, so the first thing is put it in the hands of the kids. But we also realize that in order for this to be successful, we have to engage the parents. Otherwise, it doesn't work. You know, and a lot of our parents are struggling readers themselves. So uh, we partnered up with the Lassinger Center at the University of Florida, who's overseeing the New Worlds program. So, you know, if you're a parent, you know, little, little Timmy gets a book uh, in the mail about space, you get a text message that says, hey, you know, so glad Timmy got his, you know, his first book from New World's Reading Initiative about space. Here, here's a video from somebody talking about it. Here's high quality content for you, the parent, to help you learn to read that book or to, you know, give you reading techniques to help Timmy learn to read that book. And then also giving them information. Hey, if you read to your kid 15 minutes a night, you know, their, their chances of reading on grade level goes up, you know, exponentially, you know, five times, 10 times. Um, and then lastly, making sure that we're measuring their success, um, you know, to do this. So uh, this is a moonshot. It's aggressive. It's well-funded. Uh, I think, Peter, you joked at one point in an article that, you know, it's a reading program with the, you know, the budget of a Marvel movie, which I kind of liked. And, um, you know, so we, we seeded it with you know, uh, $150-plus million, dollars, uh, and then we did a $50 million tax credit program to allow it to be self-sustaining in the future. So we're excited about it. As of today, we have 80 plus thousand kids statewide in just a number of weeks who have signed up to be part of the New World's Reading Initiative and all of that is organic growth. Um, so we're, we're really excited about what's in store for these kids. No, I, I, Speaker, I think it's fantastic. I remember when you proposed it last year and in your uh, 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 opening session speech, uh, and and what what's nice about this program uh, is amongst all the noise in in government today, nationally, locally, politics, this actually is going to matter. This program is going to matter. It's actually going to make a difference in kids' lives. It's, it's it. When I mean simple, I mean it's not a complicated piece of legislation that is going to that government has to figure out how to enact. It really is going to go to a heart of an issue. It's really going to solve a problem and it's really going to enhance kids that are behind and give them an opportunity. So I, I applaud you on it. It was a completely bipartisan piece of legislation uh, and, and you led the effort. You made it important. And, and so uh, I think that's uh, I think that's fantastic. So I, I have uh, I have two questions for the yeah. speaker. Uh, first, now as a as a as a county commissioner, which is weird to say, um, you know, I, I want to talk preemption, um, which, I, you know, clearly has gained. Ga it seems it has gained more speed in the legislature. Uh, that's obviously because of covid. But do you think uh, we'll go back to something where uh, there is more of a balance? Uh, obviously, look, Local government has to has to be good local government. It's got to show that it's doing the right things. I'm well I'm well aware of that. Obviously, if there there are obviously boundaries of local government goes beyond. Obviously, Tallahassee should have an ability to say that's that's too far uh, local government. But but right now it appears that it's it's the pendulum has swung all the way back to Tallahassee and Tallahassee is just trying to manage local governments from from afar. You think it'll come back to some sort of balance once we really get out of this whole COVID period? Yeah, I'm not, you know, I, it'll surprise you to know that I'm not sure I totally agree with that assessment. Um, but I, what I would say to you is, and here's what I believe, and I think this is what you're saying, is I don't, I don't believe that any government at any level gets a blank check on authority, right? So you've had people up here in Tallahassee um, who have said, you know, oh gosh, you know, local government, you know, it's not a good kind of government, you know, it's really, it's better off from Tallahassee on, on, on issues. I, I am not somebody who feels that way. 
I think the vast majority of issues, you know, are, you know, need to be at the local level, right? You know, no, I don't want Tallahassee or Washington D.C. You know, managing my, you know, our first responders and our emergency response times or my sewer system, right? That will be a total train wreck. Um, so, but on a lot of other issues, right? You know, Jared, you were here when we did, um, you know, the the ride sharing legislation, for example, right? There, there should have been no need for that, but local governments acted as a barrier of entry on on something that the public wanted in ride sharing. And, and a lot of it, I think you'd agree, was probably silly stuff just designed to sort of favor, you know, a particular industry and, and clamp down on innovation. And like Tallahassee had to get involved. Like, it was, and it honestly, it took years, right, you know, of, of trying to work through that in order to get that done. And yet we had no choice because if you were trying to go to the airport from, you know, Clearwater Beach to Tampa, and you were in an Uber, there came a point at which, you know, you and the Uber were breaking the law. And that's just nonsense. So you kind of had to get involved. And, I, and I'll say the blank check the other way too, Jared, because I think that it's, you know, local governments are also fond of saying home rule and kind of like exclamation point end of discussion. And I don't agree with that either. I mean, there, you know, the, uh, a lot of times I feel like local governments have done things like trying to, you know, navigate what you're doing in your home. And it's like, well, gosh, the ultimate home rule is what I'd actually do with my own home, right? Um, and also the fact that, you know, just because it's local government does not in and of itself give it more credibility um, than, than state government. I think what ends up happening where these issues arise is where there's a true intersection, right? There's a true intersection between, you know, local government and state government. And, you know, ride sharing is a good example of that intersection, something that's happening locally in our communities, Historically, a lot of local governments have taken roles in licensing, you know, taxi cabs and things like that. But we also had to acknowledge at some point that it became an outdated model. And when it, it couldn't get sorted out locally in the marketplace, you know, Tallahassee, I think, has an obligation to step in and go, hey, listen, you know, we're going to we're going to preempt this to the state as a way to make sure that, you know, customers have the ability to use something that we all think they should be able to use. So I, I generally think that sort of both sides of that discussion tend to do themselves a disservice by banners that kind of, you know, uh, indicate that they sort of get a blank check on authority. I don't think that's ever true. No, I think I think that that's a and that that is the balance I'm talking about. Right. I do think that 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 is a fair answer. Ride sharing is a, was a perfect example of Tallahassee having to step in to have a unified approach in the state uh, on a service that people uh, needed. I think that the folks that were originally against that idea, I think now history has shown that Tallahassee acted appropriately on that without question period. Uh, the thing that I'm, I, that I'm seeing sometimes now and some of the discussion is is that we have a very diverse state and that's a healthy thing. And I look, I, as someone who was born in South Florida, I spent a lot of time in the panhandle after Hurricane Michael, that was healthy for me to go up there, quite frankly, uh, and, and, and see different cultures, learn different people, get, get out of my bubble. Uh, it's healthy to do that. And, you know, look, Miami-Dade County is not a Scambia and a Scambia is not Miami-Dade County. And Dade doesn't want to become a Scambia and a Scambia doesn't want to become Dade. Uh, yeah. And that's a good thing. And so, you know, I, I do think that it's okay if Dade does things differently than Escambia and Escambia does things differently than Dade. I do think that that kind of approach is good and that, you know, I, I, I'm just starting to see a trend that, that, you know, that, you know, through preemption, we can, we can take a policy that's going on in one county and either get rid of it statewide or take a policy that's happening in a couple counties and basically blanket that. 
across across local government. But I think that's a COVID. Jared, can I just say, I, Go think ahead, Pete, please. I think it's worse than that. I think it's a, I think the cases where it's happening, and I don't want to spend this whole podcast or arguing preemption, but I think in a lot of cases, it is a minority in a blue county don't like a rule that is passed by the majority of their local elected officials and then they take it up to their red friends in Tallahassee and get it shut down. Uber was not that case. Key West was that case. Um, yeah, and let me say this, Peter. I mean, I, I think where I'd push back on that too, and, I, and I've said this to the you know, League of Cities, League of Counties, right, is there's, there are going to be times that the cities and the counties do things. You know, it doesn't have to be ride sharing. I use that as an example because it's a bill I carried at some point. But, you know, there's lots of other examples where I think the vast majority of county commissioners like Jared and, you know, city, city council folks would say, gosh, I, I wouldn't have done that in my city, right? We hear that a lot. Like, well, gosh, this mayor appointed, you know, appointed herself to lead the special district. And then there was embezzling of cash, you know, but why is the legislature doing preemption? Well, that's why we're doing preemption. And, yeah. for, and unfortunately, some of the times there are really bad actors that do things and on the local level, just like there are bad actors who do things in the Tallahassee level. The difference is, is that when that happens, Tallahassee has a choice. They can make, we can make a law that, that you know, in, in our view, attempts to correct some of those things, but in doing so catches people in the net who are doing a great job and not doing anything wrong and being great actors. But if we don't do it and it happens again, then there's a level of culpability on our part for ignoring it and not doing anything. But, but where I would be critical of the cities and the counties in that is that when that has happened, I have not seen press releases from the city, the, the League of Cities. I have not seen press releases from the League of Counties condemning the actions of some of their colleagues in local government saying, hey, listen, this was terrible. You know, we don't we don't condone this. We think this is horrible. We think this is awful. We would never do this. I'm not seeing that. I'll hear it when I meet with people, but I don't see the sort of kind of loud condemnation. So to a certain extent, I would challenge the leadership in the cities and counties where if that's the case and you feel like, hey, we're getting unfairly caught in the net, then that means you have to step up in those moments and you have to call out your colleagues across the state and and once they realize that that's going to start happening inside sort of the own the, the bubble of local government that is going to help some of those things not happen but to date i haven't been saying that for the last four years i am yet to see that happen good point good point Gary, did you have another question you said you had two at the beginning yeah let's let's move off from that so uh this i think the speakers are really good uh, barometer for this question because he came in two, two years after uh, I did and, and things have changed so dramatically. How do you think Twitter has changed Tallahassee? Hmm. You know, do you, do you think it's changed? I mean, I do, but do you think it's changed Tallahassee? Do you think it's changed how we interact with each other in committee on the floor? Do you think it's changed, you know, bill processes? I mean, do you, what, what are your thoughts on social media, Twitter in general, how that's impacted your eight years in the house? I think it's, I'm not sure it's really specific to Tallahassee. I think Twitter has sort of changed human beings in sort of a broader sense, right? I mean, I think that uh, certainly um, if you find anybody who says to you, Twitter has made me happier, um, I don't think that person exists. I think that person's a unicorn. Um, but but I also Thanks for calling me a unicorn. I appreciate that, Speaker. <laughs> oh, there's no doubt that Twitter makes Peter happy. No yeah, doubt. Yeah. There is no very, doubt. You know, I haven't been called before, a unicorn before in a while. Twitter. Before Twitter, he had to write all this stuff in his diary. 
yeah, exactly. <laughs> now he knows where to go find it. I know, I know I like that tweet. Where is it? Um, <laughs> look, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's changed people's um, perception of reality. Like Twitter's not real. Like it's not real. Like it's not real. The opinions on Twitter aren't real. They're not, we, we know for a fact that Twitter is not indicative of the world that we live in. We know that it's a very, very small percentage of people are on Twitter, most of whom are sort of insiders. And, and, and of those small percentage of people who are insiders, a very small percentage of them do the vast majority of uh, the tweeting, present company included. And you know, so I think that it's a, it's a great snapshot if you wanna see those people's opinion, but, we, but I think what ends up happening is people think, gosh, that's indicative of the world around us. And it's just not true. Um, so it's sort of made up and I think it sort of skews people's view of the world. But I think that ultimately when people interact with their fellow human beings and step away from the, you know, the, the Robespierre Twitter mob for two seconds, they, they come back down to reality and realize that there's a whole wide world out there that does Who is Robes? Pierre, is that a is that a last name? <laughs> um, I, can I just defend social media for one second? And I'm not going to defend Twitter because Twitter, I think, is a different beast. Yeah. But I will say, I, in addition to loving Twitter, I really love Instagram and Facebook. And I'll just use the Facebook example. Long story short, with what Michelle went through, my wife Michelle went through over the last year. Like Facebook was an incredible support system that, you know, I wish people like, like I have a rule that I basically, I really don't really talk about politics on Facebook. Um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll occasionally comment on local stuff or maybe highlight like just a really important article. But I, I broke many years ago, I, I stopped posting like Florida politics content to my personal Facebook page and just put it on the regular FP Facebook page. And I got to tell you, I love it. I love seeing like, I mean, speaker, I mean, you and I have a shared affinity for uh, a Sunday evening in our very small boats out on the Pinellas waters, you know? I mean, and I feel like if people used Facebook for the the communal good that it was, I think, intended for, man, I think we'd be a lot. I think it, I actually do think it enhances life because it connects so many of us, um, especially in this, this in horrible period of isolation. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't disagree with that. I, I think that it, it certainly can have its its uses. I'm not against all social media. I think that, you know, certainly, um, you know, we we obviously have studies, right, that say people who are spending a lot of the time on social media aren't necessarily generally happier, and so on and so forth. But there's there's certainly rewarding qualities to it, right? I mean, we got a we have a neighborhood Facebook page, and you know, you want to you know give you know donate something, and, you know, you do a little curb alert, and ten minutes later, you know, one of your neighbors has come and picked it up, and you know, maybe they've taken a, a desk that you had that you know you were going to get rid of, and and now they're using it. So look, I mean, I think that social media has been- Wait, great. can I have your desk? Sure, yeah. You gotta get, I, you gotta I get have, on I would, How awesome would it be to have the speaker's desk? Like <laughs> You would like tweet all, about it every day, you would. <laughs> it, would be, it would be its own Twitter account. The right, speaker's Twitter. desk would like, be like to the hanky. It'd be like the hanky, it'd have its own Twitter. Um, we know you have to go. You've actually got, you know, it's crazy that you gave us this time. Um, I do wanna ask one question. We had about or about the money. Um, not that I want some, but uh, we had a great story in Florida politics today by our new reporter Gray Rohr from over from the Orlando Sentinel. He spoke with Senate President Simpson about, "Hey, you've got four billion dollars extra in this budget surplus. What is a priority you're looking at?" Uh, 
he is uh, he outlined a plan to increase the minimum wage uh, for state employees at a more accelerated rate and to more people like contractors and OPS, et cetera. Um, do you want to give us a little scoop here? Do you have a do you have a small plan in the back of your pocket that you'd like to see a few of these extra dollars uh, dedicated to? Um, I, I think it would probably be wildly predictable. You know, I mean, I, you know, I, I said this in the opening day speech, right? I and mean, we've, we've got um, all this money because, you know, uh, state was state was open. People are doing well. People are moving here. Uh, state's booming. Economy's booming. But so we have this like historic opportunity to invest money in long-term needs of the state, right? We don't always get to say, okay, we've got this money. If we invest it, what's the best thing to invest it for for the next 25, 30 years uh, of the state's you know future and health? Uh, but what I also said was it's also a historic opportunity to waste money on kind of short term wants, right? Like there's that that need to like, let's rush to the store and buy all the toys and cookies that we've, you know, we've always wanted to have. I um, love that feeling. <laughs> as, as opposed to, you know, hey, what are the things that might not be terribly sexy uh, for most people, but are the things that we really need? You know, I'll give you just one example, right? I mean, with last year, the house had in our budget, you know, money for deferred maintenance. And it's like deferred maintenance. Like, what's that? It's like, well, you know, like you got to fix the roof and replace the air conditioning and the building and all these things. And it's like, like nobody, no politician gets invited to the ribbon cutting for the new AC unit of the building. I ran on that platform, by the way. What do you think uh, Jared's going to be doing in Broward for the next two years? <laughs> I mean, it's just... You know, Jared goes and he builds a new building. They're like, oh, my gosh, you know, it's the best. Let's name it after you, you know, but, you know, you, you fix the leaky roof and they're like, I'm not even sure you get a thank you note. So but but look, we've got hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars in assets. Like those are kinds of things we need to think about um, investments in, in long term. And, I, you know, I, I think the president's right about looking at, you know, the salaries and, uh, of, of state employees. I think of it more in context of inflation. Right. I mean, we always talk about salaries as it relates to kind of well, we did, you know, three percent three years ago and we did, you know, two percent or, or, you know, across the board raises as opposed to, I think, thinking about it in context of what's the value of that money now versus the value of it then. And I think when we start doing that, we realize that, you know, we're, we're behind. I mean, we're, we're probably 11 to 14 percent behind on um, on inflation. When it comes to the salary of state employees, and that's you know that's not going to like be fixed overnight, but I do think if we, we need to start thinking of it in that context and the realizing that the value of that dollar has changed, is changing, and will continue to change. Speaker, there's no doubt about that. As someone who ran an agency, I can tell you, when I first came into the agency and asked for everybody's salaries, because retention has always been a problem in emergency management, we bleed not just to the private sector, we bleed to other state agencies that pay more. I was astounded at some folks that had been there 10, 15 years and and to see what their salaries were. The colas had been eliminated. This is well before your time, obviously. And so, you know, you want good people in government. You want smart people in government. You want to be able to recruit new talent as folks are aging, aging out and retiring. And so, you know, I think I think we do have to raise salaries. We should get competitive uh, with as much as we can with private business and get competitive uh, with with other states, Florida is experiencing a renaissance. People are moving here in droves, and we should try to recruit some of those people under government. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and so I, I do think 
uh, that is a that is an admirable thing that you uh, and the Senate president are talking about. I have I have one last question before you go. Yeah. Um, so I, I want like one look behind the curtain. So like you you become speaker. Give us like one tidbit that like when you became speaker and you're sitting down for your your, you know, like, you know, they they bring you in, they sit you down, they tell you all the state secrets or whatever, you know, or like this is what it's going to be like to be speaker. Give, give us like one tidbit that you didn't know that when you were doing, you know, you were doing the sit down, you were like, oh, OK. Gosh, you know, there's no like Area 51 moment. Um but you know, who coined the word sprinkle? Did they tell you at least who that person was? <laughs> who, who who was the person who said sprinkle? We're going to call that it ball. sprinkle. I just I just <laughs> assumed it was you, Jared, to be honest. And I, you know, but I um, I'll tell you this. I'll, I'll tell you what you, you probably is hard to um, to realize until you're there. And I know, Jared, you've experienced this in a lot of different things, you know, certainly in, you know, in, in leading emergency management for, for the third largest state in America is the horizon of things, right? Like this is a huge state with lots of different issues. And I, and as I was kind of coming up and doing that transition period of, you know, deep, you know, deep dives into things I knew, things I really didn't know anything about, things I thought I knew things about. You know, you realize, you know, how complicated the state is. And, you know, I'll tell you one of the, the most annoying question that I got when you are, at least for me, when I was about to become speaker was, what are the two things you want to do? And I'm thinking to myself, I can't tell you the two things because there aren't two things. There are 50 things. We got 48 of them last year, by the way. But there's, there are 50 things that, that I think are, are really important you know, for us to do in the next, um, this, this is last session, last session in order to make this state, you know, what it should be 30 years from now. And I, I do think that you have to have a really wide horizon for a state that is as big and important as Florida, because otherwise you're going to do a real injustice. And the other thing I think that I maybe didn't appreciate as much before you have the job and then and after you have it is that this is probably the greatest opportunity in American politics. And I, I really believe that because here you are, myself, you know, the Senate president, our members, you know, we are in a position to effectuate change, not in like the broad, abstract, can't really reach out and touch it sort of way, but in the real, see it in people's faces, see it in their lives, see it when they get a job or they can afford their child's education or their child learns to read, or, you know, they go out into the workforce, you know, those are things that you really get to change and really get to matter when you are in this job. Um, and then you go home and you go to Publix and nobody knows who you are. It's awesome. You know, and it's, it really is the best thing in American politics. And I've told people, um, you know, that you might be interested in running for the legislature that, look, you may go to the legislature, maybe you'll do other things. Maybe you'll do what you did, Jared. You'll go to local government or you'll run for higher office or whatever. But this is hard to replicate um, because if you work hard and you, you're, you know, Jared, you're a great example of this, somebody who is a member of the minority party, right? But come up here, work hard, build relationships based on trust, mutual respect, realizing that somebody does the work and has an answer, even if it's an answer you don't agree with, it's a real answer based on real information. And then being able to go out there and like change the state of Florida and realize that 
if you do that and you do that well, yes, you've impacted people who live here that are, you know, 22 million strong, but also you have changed the world in, in, a, in a third largest state in the most powerful nation on earth. That's a pretty cool thing. And it also can have reverberations um, well outside the borders of the state of Florida. That's a cool thing. Most people don't know about it and it makes this job really awesome. Way to end uh, this segment. Um, go and do all those great things for the third largest state. Um, our guest speaker of the house, Chris Sproles from Pinellas County, my neck of the woods. Um, go back and read my birthday tribute to him, uh, which I repost every year to kiss his ass uh, about. <laughs> he's one of the genuine good guys out there. Um, you know, I, I, I like to tell people the story of the first time I met the speaker, room full of politicians. He was the one who broke away from everybody else and played with uh, a then baby Ella Joyce. Um, clearly, he knew how powerful my blog was, and it was, <laughs> but um, it's just so good to have you on the pod. Well, it was great to be with you guys. Thanks for the fun conversation. Uh, happy to do it again soon. Okay. Thank you, speaker. Right. See you guys. We're just going to continue here along uh, with uh, Jared and I wrapping up our conversation that we had. All right, so we got the speaker. You got to get us a good guest next week, Jared. Okay, I, I I will try. I mean, obviously, there's literally only two people that could either <laughs> tie that or one up it. No, I mean, there's interesting. Like, listen, that Jay Trumbull interview. People like that's the one that people come up to me. Um, I, because, you know, they really, how many people know Jay Trumbull outside of like the panhandle in Tallahassee. Right. And so here's a guy that's like super important appropriator, you know, like there's some folks, less some lawmakers like Tom Leak, you know, that is really well regarded. Um, you know, that probably I would love to get on here and that kind of thing. Okay. There's so you're giving, me the, you're giving me the Tom Leak challenge. <laughs> is that it? Yeah, I'm giving you the Tom Leak challenge. If you I mean, say Tom Leak three times, I got to take a shot. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, um, fine. Tom Leak. All right, so you're on the county commission. I did want to ask you about that. I don't even know what day do you guys meet. Like, what day is bad to do the pod? So, you guys, like, so yesterday was my first uh, county commission meeting, uh, which, by the way, was tough. Uh, you know, I, yep. uh, you know, all the county commissioners, you know, talked about my dad. So did the county administrator. They put an item on the agenda on my, at my first meeting to name a building after him. Jesus. So, so that so that was that was a lot. And I came in with a bang because you know wh why wouldn't I? And uh, I proposed in my opening speech in my first county commission meeting to change the name of Broward County uh, and to uh, put to the voters a county-wide elected mayor, uh, which we don't have in Broward. Um, and I believe in both of those two things. They're both big 30,000 foot things. But at the end of the day, people from Broward, when they travel around business or otherwise, don't say you're from Broward. They say, oh, Fort Lauderdale, South Florida. Nobody says they're from Broward. Uh, and Miami-Dade changed their name by adding the word Miami. Uh, and it turned out to be a great marketing tool, good recruitment tool. What do you want to change the name to? Well, I'll put it to the voters. I mean, listen, most people say they're from Fort Lauderdale you know, or Lauderdale, I mean, put it to the voters, let the voters decide, uh, give them a couple options uh, and, and put it on the ballot. But, but I think it's time for Broward, uh, Broward to disappear. Plus, if you look at who it's named after, 
which is uh, Napoleon Bonaparte Broward, uh, who died over 100 years ago. You know, his his some of his views, not some lots of his views no longer fit the diverse county uh, of Broward. So there's there's a lot of reasons, I think, uh, for that to happen. And on the elected mayor standpoint, you know, I had a unique opportunity that I got to work with all 67 counties uh, during the pandemic. And you can't compare Broward or Dade to a Union or Bradford, but I can compare Broward to Palm Beach and Dade and Hillsborough and Orange and Duval and, you know, some of the other large counties as well. And I can tell you the, the counties that had an elected mayor, strong or otherwise, had an elected mayor were quicker. Their response was faster. They were more organized. We were able to accomplish more. And, uh, you know, I just think having nine people on a board where it's just musical chairs like everyone get everyone gets a participation trophy like everyone gets to be mayor one year that that is not i don't think that's helpful for government i I think that adds a lot of bureaucracy i think there needs to be someone accountable to the voters someone leading you know keeping the trains running on time and leading leading the policy debate and so you know i don't know if that'll all happen in my time on the county commission but i do think it would enhance broward make us more competitive uh, with Dade County, I mean, what's going on in Dade County right now is unbelievable. What uh, Mayor Cava has uh, got going on, uh, and what Mayor Suarez has got going on, it's unbelievable what's going on in Dade County uh, right now. And and Broward shouldn't just be getting the scraps from that. Broward should be in the mix for those conversations. The in Pinellas County, we were named our county after a tree, so we really don't have to worry about the name too much. I mean, it's literally Pinellas. Um, <laughs> we don't even have to worry about those kind of. Um, so much has happened, like, like on like state political side, and yet not much has changed from like the holidays when you and I were talking a little bit more often. Um, well, I do think qu- this session. I do think this session. It, I mean, Peter, you've been you've done this longer than I have, uh, but have I, I don't. I did it eight and a half years. How long have you been doing this? Uh, no, you're right. I mean, but I just, yeah. How you old remember, are you, Jared? Do you, how, I'm 41. Okay, yeah. I just okay. turned I just turned 41. Um, so, but do you remember a session during an election year that is as red meat as this one? I don't remember them being this red meat uh, as 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 these. But I will say, and I this isn't. I defend the legislature, uh, this legislature and previous ones. Um, These are people that are elected and they win at the Republican primary level. Um, And so when they go back, when Cord Bird goes back to, you know, to back home, he doesn't see, you know, progressive Democrats. He doesn't even have to interact with them. And, you know, it's a combination of, of gerrymandering, it's a combination of there aren't competitive, you know, Democrats don't run in these seats. Um, it's a, a, a factor in that the Democrats who do run are not very good at campaigning. There's a lot of blocking and tackling issues outside of South Florida and Tampa Bay for Democrats that are running. I mean, there's people that I think could have won um, in, in, in battleground seats, but just got beat by a better operation on the Republican side. But my point is, is that, you know, people go back to Southwest Florida and they go back to, you know, the panhandle and their constituents are the federated women of Pensacola. 
those people are watching Tucker Carlson and saying that immigrants are bad and therefore you're going to get an immigration bill. Uh, and does that represent, you know, 50% of the state? No, but I will say that these guys do deserve credit for they are they do listen to their constituents. They're just not people that quite honestly you and I interact with very often in our very increasingly purple uh, parts of the world. Oh, listen, I, I interacted with them plenty. I mean, I spent I spent so much time in the panhandle. They kept saying well, I was I was going to I was going to leave I as, say a as a Baptist, lawmaker as a lawmaker. <laughs> yeah, no, I no, I get it. Listen, no, they I I don't begrudge them that they believe they're delivering for their voters. But in an election year, there had been this like unwritten rule, which is get in and out as fast as possible, give raises to teachers, rainbows and butterflies and go out to the trail and raise money. I don't there's more but red meat, more but red meat. There's more session than last session. Well, and, you know, I think part of that is, is these guys are afraid. And I say guys because, you know, it just is unspoken how it's not unspoken. It's so overwhelmingly white male um and like you know there was the retirement yesterday or the announced retirement of um representative cooper from nashville you know and there was a whole article about how there are no white male uh democrats real i mean that's you know that that's just such a rarity um these guys i think are afraid of drawing a primary they're like you know, like there is, you know, between now and, and qualifying later in uh, late spring and everything like that, there is the chance that somebody will come along and because they didn't, you know, if a lawmaker doesn't do something about immigrants and the crazy school boards and, you know, fealty to Trump, they might draw a Republican primary challenge and end up, you know, losing in a low turnout Republic, you know, they're, they're, they get accused of being a rhino or some crap like that and i think that that's their only genuine fear and so yeah you're probably right this is an extraordinarily t-bone uh filet mignon red meat session and that is not rare or that is different i will say this i do think that some I of like these how issues you used t-bone and then that it was rare it was very nice actually thank you i um i do think eventually everything breaks i mean everything's cyclical in american politics we know that um I, I do feel like if you go too far on this abortion bill, I really do think that that is something that will end up energizing um, in, in battleground seats, of which there will be a fair amount um, looking at the new maps. I do think that that is, that is the one issue that could energize moderate, independent, you know, women, et cetera, uh, and, 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 come back to bite some of the Republicans that push this, push that bill. Yeah. I mean, listen, there's no doubt that, you know, both parties have this primary system that is closed to obviously the most fervent of each voter and the being primary to the left or right is definitely pushing policy to prevent that challenge because you know, look, look, here's a reality. Every politician that gets elected, the first thing they worry about is reelection, right? Breaking news. So um, there's no doubt that that is happening, that threat. I think it's probably a, a, a little greater on the right than it is the left, but there is, there is that also on the left. I mean, if you look at a lot of the progressives that are now in Congress, they've taken out moderates. So 
Um, you know, I, I, I think that is Here, something. Let me ask you about that, Jared, because that's what, like I said this to Michelle last night, like, and, and part of the challenge is, all right, so I am a white male, upper income Christian. So like, I'm, I am the anomaly in the Democratic Party. So me saying, complaining about it, um, it, you know, but I, I, I find it very hard to identify with a lot that is going on in, at the national level at the Democratic Party. I do think that, like, you know, like I read a great Andrew Sullivan piece and now on, on Friday, and I just, I feel like some of this stuff that the, the cancel culture, the arguments over CRT, um, some of the, just the identity politics are, are, they make me uncomfortable and it makes, and I, and I can see where it makes other moderate voters uncomfortable. And I can see where, you know, the biggest problem for Democrats is not losing white male Democrats like me. It's losing Hispanic voters who, you know, are turned off by Black Lives Matter. They're turned off by defund the police. They're defund, they're, they're turned off by some of the identity politics of the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, listen, it, again, it's not unique to what's just happening on uh, in the Democratic Party. I talked to Republican voters who have been Republican their whole life that are turned off by some of the things they're seeing on the right. Uh, and these are conservatives. Okay. These are not these are not, you know, I'm I am only Republican because of taxes. These are conservatives They're They believe in conservative policies, but they, they see what's going on in the Republican Party and they feel the same way. And so, look, there are many different sections, kind of like in religion, really, in politics. OK, so even within the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, these are big tents and and there's always. A, a left and a right. There's always a middle, uh, but it feels like the fringes are getting more oxygen because that's, I mean, let's be honest, that's, they're on TV every day. The media spends time on the fringes because that's where the energy is. That's where the money is. Uh, that's where the anger is. Uh, and so that gets amplified. Um, and so, you know, look, of course there are things that are proposed right now that I don't understand guaranteed government income. Right. That that's not something I understand. But by the way, 50 years from now, when robots are doing everything, that might actually be something that we need. Uh, but right. But right now, I don't I don't understand that. Right. That policy is 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 way out there. But I think pushing from the left is also good because it does get sometimes folks, moderates, folks in the center a little out of their comfort zone. Uh, and, and we do get a little more. I, I think I think what both fringes miss is that politics is not done by Hail Marys. You don't make progress by throwing the ball all the way down the field. And if you have to get, you have to get that touchdown, meaning if you don't get a hundred percent of what you want, then we're going to do nothing. That's not how it works. This hostage taking that, that the right and the left are doing that. Like, we're not going to pass this bill. You don't pass that bill. no, you move the ball down the field. Politics is just like football, right? Yes, sometimes you throw a Hail Mary when you have no choice, but most of the time is it's 10 yards. It's a 25-yard play, right? It's a field goal to win the game. Unless it's the LA Rams against Tom Brady, and they just let that receiver just, you know, catch a 50-yard pass and like, stop look, or I, come back. I, look, build back better. That, that's a good bill. 
there are aspects of Build Back Better that I want, right? No question about it. But should we have held the infrastructure bill hostage for a whole year? No, that no, we Democrats needed to be talking about an infrastructure bill a year ago out there. Right. And so I think that was that was bad strategy. In fact, a lot of the times my struggle with my party has been strategy. <laughs> you know, policy wise, I'm, I'm probably a practical progressive. I am progressive, but I'm I'm practical. Like, oh, look, we're not going to get all of this. So let's get some of it. Did I want an assault weapons ban after Parkland? You're damn right. I wanted an assault weapons ban. Was I willing to torpedo the entire gun control bill over assault weapons? I wasn't because I wasn't going to pass assault weapons. Was I was I willing to raise the age to 21? Yep. Was I willing to get a background check? Yep. Was I willing to get, uh, you know, red flag laws? You're uh, absolutely OK. Was I willing to let all of that die by the wayside because we couldn't get an assault weapons ban? No. Because I realized if we didn't get the stuff now, we would never get it. And that lack of strategy uh, that that does seem to be slightly more pervasive in my party than in the Republicans, uh, that's something that I struggle with, which is, hold on a second. We can get eight of the 10 things we want. Let's go get them. Oh, well, the other two we can't get. So mm, I don't know. No, nowadays you're only in power for limited periods of time. It's clear to me it's two years, it's four years. But this period of holding the House eight or 10 or 12 years, those days are clearly over uh, at the national level. It is a pendulum. It's going to swing back and forth. The country is going to go too far to the right. Then there's going to be a correction. It'll go to the it'll go back to the center and then to the Democrats. Then the Democrats will take it too far to the left. Then there'll be a correction and it'll go back. That's clearly the, the period that we are in. So when you have power, you got to get as much done as you can. And time is not your friend. And so, you know, you know, if, if I was ever up in D.C., I would be a hard charging bull, like get it done, move the ball, get it, get it signed. Next bill, get it done, get it signed next bill, because guess what? 18 months from now, they're going to control this place. So um, yeah, that's something that I think we got to get better at. Well, I think uh, I think you're back. I will say that, like, I know it's going to be uh, it's going to be a tough listen. I just said it to myself the other day to Michelle, my father, Pat, and I hate when people, I, I hate when people do what I'm going to do, which is equivocate one person's passing with the passing in somebody in their life. But I did say to Michelle the other day, my God, my dad's been gone 16 years uh, as of February 5th. I don't know why that popped into my head. I, but I dream of him still. Like I still, it's been this remarkable thing where I have dreams of my dad and interact with him and Michelle doesn't. And she's like, Man, I feel like she's jealous of that. Um, and I always just think about, I always try to tell people who are in mourning, like, you don't have to do this all right now. This is going to be a long thing. Uh, and I know it will be with yours because I think the greater the man, uh, the greater the relationship, the longer the mourning, the longer the loss. Um, but I will say it's nice to have you back on the pod. I think, um, you know, I, I really, I, we keep saying we're going to make this a regular pod once a week. I hope we can do that in 2022. Yeah, no, listen, uh, I, I love doing this with you right now. Obviously, it's a great distraction uh, for me. I, I, I think people, you know, there's there's very few media out there that is just kind of real without the spin, you know, without some sort of, you know, 
tinge because of some court of, some sort of corporate sponsor, which we still don't have. You've let me down on that, by the way. But, <laughs> but, but no, look, Peter, you know, going back to my dad real quick, uh, you know, look, there's a void in my life that that void can never be filled. You know, it will get better with time. There's no doubt about that. You know, he's not here, but but I'm here because of him, you know, and I am who I am because of him. And so, you know, it, it, it it's it's going to be different. Uh, and but, you know, look, every, one day at a time, one foot in front of the other. I'm always going to miss him. There will always be points in my life. I don't know you know, what my future holds business-wise, political-wise, who knows, but, you know, whatever I do, there will be points in each day. I'll be like, mm, I wish he was here. I wish he saw that, wish he heard it, wish I could talk to him about it. That's always going to happen. Right. So, um, you know, look, you know, I want to, you know, there'll come up a point in time where I'll s- smile about the memories. I'll be able to talk about him openly with the kids. I'll educate, I'll re- educate the kids on who he is. One of the things my dad, and it broke my heart, when because my dad and I had these horrible conversations, you know, uh, uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm did like a whole episode on cancer just for some sarcasm, because I, yeah. I do like that. Larry David's like my spirit animal. Uh, and he said, you know, never take advice from a stage one, only take advice from a stage four. Uh, and, it, <laughs> and, 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 and it's a great, obviously, sarcastic way of looking at it. But the truth is, is like, you know, my dad knew he was dying. So the conversations we were having were like, you know, just mind boggling. And the one thing he said to me is he said, you know, like he said, I'm worried the kids aren't going to remember me. And, you know, I realized like, that's my job. That's my job. Now, my job is to make sure that they, they knew who he was and that they remember him. And so, you know, there's, there's lots of different aspects to, to all of this. Um, And, you know, look, I've had a tough three years. You know, I thought, you know, after Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, oh, this is the toughest thing I'm going to do. And then the pandemic hit and I was like, oh, well, OK, one up it. This is the toughest thing I'm mm-hmm. going to do. And then, you know, my dad gets pancreatic cancer mid pandemic. So it's been a it's been a rough three years. The letter P Parkland pandemic pancreatic cancer P is not my friend. Um, and so, you know, I've I've learned and grown a lot over the last three years dealing with these experiences um, and, 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 you know, look, you, you, you grow from it, you learn from it, you move on. Uh, but mom, look, my family is the most important thing to me. My dad made that, made that clear that, you know, you know, when you, when you realize it's all coming to an end, your priorities get straight very quickly. They do. Um, well, until next week, I, I, I I'm not going to even try. And- Tom Leak, if you hear this, I'm going to be calling you Tom Leak, paging Tom Leak. I want to thank our uh, producer behind the scenes, Phil Ammon and Jay Caruso. Uh, thank our, our guest, House Speaker Chris Sproles. My name Tom is Peter Leak. Shorsh. Tom Leak. Tom Leak. If you're listening, please come on the show next week. Um, uh, this is State of Emergency. <laughs>